Well, good. Well, um, in thinking about the name change, you know, I, I had to go back and just look a little historically for myself, and uh, three thoughts came to mind. First, in a name, there's character, and being at our church for 45 years or more, I knew one thing that was required of a church, and no matter where I was or what decision I was making regarding a church, and the purpose of that church is to proclaim the Word of God and His truth. And this act, by His Holy Spirit's work, was the only measuring stick in my mind with which to gauge a church. So our church did that faithfully and does that still faithfully. So as a result, the character of our church is sealed, and we called ourselves Glenwood, and that's, but the character was there. It didn't matter the name, but it, it, it built that name. But secondly, then in the process, just in 2013, I realized the name change does not equal character change or a change in purpose. And my general nature is to be opposed to change unless there's a good reason. Um, that's just true. It's, and in 2013, I was a teacher with a startup education program in the Northland schools for all the six Northland school districts. And the program modeled a successful program from Blue Valley School District called CAPS. And the CAPS was an acronym that stood for Center for Advanced Professional Studies. And distinctive in that acronym was the letter P for professional. And I, I thought, that separates it from other high school programs. Well, but when I started with it, the original name of that startup was chosen to be NACS. And first, NACS sounds, didn't sound good. But, you know, you don't even know how to spell it, right? And, and that, that acronym stood for Northland Access Career Services, which sounds generic. So to me, it sounded bad. It didn't communicate a, a distinctive from other school programs. So I spoke with the director of that program, and everything was just fresh at that point. There were just four of us, and it was a startup, except for the support from the superintendents. But, um, and she knew the same thing, because she was from Blue Valley. And within two weeks, the name was changed. So she just took care of that. And from this, I learned that a name change for an organization should just be done if it's important and right. Just do it. And in a way, it's not a big deal. It just needs to be done. So that brings me to where we are today. Um, we're being led to make a change, and let's just do it. LifeBridge. The name contains the word life. Uh, it starts with God who's an amazing creator and is the only source of life in the universe. And a lot of times we think, wow, look at the life we have, and it's 80 or 100 years, and everything's wearing out. But the only source of life is him, period. He grants life, sustains life, and is life. And the word life, though we in our culture take it for granted, it's a distinctive of our Heavenly Father, who is life. So there's no other source in the universe, and to be in his presence is life. So LifeBridge begins to communicate that. Making the change is not the end of the world. We're being led to do it. So we need to pray about it to our Heavenly Father and express our heart and let his Holy Spirit, as Emmanuel said, seal his will and be confident in that. So let him give you confidence and then just do what he says. So thanks. Thank you, Pat. If you'll all stand with me and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel. We will be reading Daniel chapter 3. As Pastor Bruce uh, returns to his sermon series out of Daniel, this morning we'll be reading Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 30. And if you use a pew Bible, you can find this on page 502 and 503. Again, Daniel chapter 3. 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship... You shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the, fi and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the midst of the f burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, "'Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire?' They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, 
I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and all the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no God other than there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray. God our Father, we thank you. We praise you that there is no God like you. Lord, may we be trusting, may you move our hearts towards action and towards standing firm in the truth of your word. Lord, may we look at the example of these three men, God, and may you just mold and shape our hearts into boldness and to standing on your truth. In Christ's name, amen. While living in the state of Missouri, it's assumed... In fact, it's even expected, if you're living in the state of Missouri, that you are a Missouri Tiger fan. You cheer for the Tigers during football season. You cheer for the Tigers during basketball season. Well, except for these last few years. You're exempt from that then. But as someone who was born in the state of Kansas, I am a KU fan. My allegiance is with the Jayhawks. I quickly discovered while going to college in Springfield, Missouri, though, that cheering for the Jayhawks was unacceptable. And so every year, I experienced this my freshman year, and when I would go back from my sophomore year and junior year, senior year, every year I would experience and I would get pressure to change my allegiance to the Tigers. And uh, I'm proud to say I never gave in to that pressure. I stood tall. In fact, in 1988, I got the last laugh when the Jayhawks won the championship. And I was able to give it to my roommates and my friends who were alumni and fans of Missouri. The story in Daniel 3 is really the story of three young men who are kind of under the same kind of pressure. They're under the pressure to change teams. They are under pressure to forsake their loyalty to God and exchange it for religious loyalty to King Nebuchadnezzar. But in the face of such pressure, they stand strong. They stand tall in their loyalty to God. Now, most of us know these young men by their more popular names. As it's, their names are repeated several times throughout the story here in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what we're going to see is this. These three young men were willing to stand tall for their faith in God, even 
if it might cost them their lives. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love what pastor and author John Piper calls this. He says it's the ultimate win-win scenario. If I live, I get Christ. If I die, I get more of Christ. Either way, I win. This way of thinking, this way of looking at life, even looking at death, must have been in the minds of these three young Hebrew men. As we watch their story unfold, we will see that they are men of courage. They're men of conviction. They are men of commitment. In fact, their faith is rather amazing, and their confidence in God, well, it is stellar. And that's what we need. We here this morning, if you are a Christ follower, we need to imitate their faith. We need what they have if we're going to thrive in Babylon. Now the story starts with King Nebuchadnezzar making this golden image on a Babylonian plain. In fact, it's a gold image that stands tall, and King Nebuchadnezzar's statue of gold stands tall for one reason and one reason only, and that is for all to bow down to and worship. According to Daniel 3, in the very first verse here, we find that Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the mountain of Dora in the province of Babylon. And so here you have this 90-foot tall statue, and it is enormous. In fact, to give you some perspective, the Statue of Liberty is 130 feet tall from head to toe, and this statue of gold is almost as tall as that. This enormous golden statue, though, reminds us immediately of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the previous chapter, Daniel chapter 2. And in that dream, you might remember that the statue had a head of gold which represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, while the rest of the body was made of other materials which depicted the, the lesser kingdoms that would come after Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and yet would end up in fragmentation. Why? Destroyed by the coming kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar's statue, however... It's a little bit different here in Daniel 3. It's made entirely of gold in an apparent attempt to counteract the dream that he had in Daniel chapter 2. In other words, this statue that he made and he set up, it was somewhat of a defiant statement asserting that there would be no end to his kingdom, but rather that his glory would continue forever. Nebuchadnezzar's message with this image, it is loud and clear. I'm the king, and this is the grand kingdom in which you're a part of, and it's the only one worth pledging allegiance to. In fact, it's interesting, after Daniel interpreted his dream in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar declared in verse 47, Truly your God, Daniel, is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets. But his allegiance still has not changed. Nebuchadnezzar still thinks that it's all about him. That it's all about his glory and his power. And this statue is a reflection of that. The identity of this statue is not made clear for us. It's an image. Is it an image of Nebuchadnezzar? Or is it an image of one of their Babylonian gods? 
Well, we don't really know, and to be quite honest with you, it doesn't really matter. The point is, Nebuchadnezzar set it up to glorify himself. In fact, it's interesting. I'm sure you caught it as Kirk read this, the scriptures for us here in Daniel 3. That phrase, set it up, is repeated five times in just the first seven verses. It's then repeated several times in the rest of the verses in the chapter. And the point of God is making with that, that phrase, set it up, is that Nebuchadnezzar set it up. In other words, it, it, it's from him, it's for him, it's by him. He set it up. And so it is all about him. What is more, the location of the statue is where the Tower of Babel was built, which you can read about in Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel had a twofold function in the mind of the people who built it. It was, again, it was a defiant attempt on their behalf to make a name for themselves as a lasting legacy to their glory and also to prevent the people from being scattered throughout the earth as God had decreed. And now what we see here in the same location is Nebuchadnezzar's statue has the same two goals in mind. It was designed to establish a lasting legacy to his personal glory and to provide a unifying focus for his kingdom. And this is why he summoned not merely the, the local officials in the city of Babylon, but all the officials throughout all his empire to come and gather together for the dedication of the statue. In fact, this occasion was highly orchestrated highly choreographed with all kinds of music, as well as a death warning to anyone who refused to bow down in worship. Now make no mistake about it, this is not coexist here. It's bow down or burn up. That is the only options. And that's the inevitable result of cultures that claim to coexist with all religions. It doesn't take long for pluralistic societies to become totalitarian. In other words, it's okay to worship whatever God you want as long as you bow down to whatever the government says. And so when the moment of commitment came, it appeared that everyone present pledged their allegiance to King Nebuchadnezzar and to his idolatrous image. And so the choice before these three young men was rather clear. Bow down in worship or burn up in the fiery furnace. So how would they respond? How would Meshach and Bendigo, and I'm forgetting the other name, Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how would they respond? How would you respond? If you were there in their shoes, brought to the image, and you are faced with that choice. What we see in the response of these three young men is a faith that stands tall, even if it might cost you your life. Notice this, first of all, the first point here. Faith stands tall before the statue. The three young men would not bow to the golden image. Yes, this statue is enormous. And the pressure on these three young men to bow down and worship was enormous as well. Now, let me just stop here and kind of make a distinction uh, because it's, 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 you may be wondering in, in our text here, you have bow down and worship. You may wonder, what's the difference between bowing down and worship? Are they similar or what? Yes, they are 
uh, they're communicating similar ideas. To worship is to bow down, and to bow down is to worship. Worship, though, there is a, a slight distinction between the two. Worship is, is more the attitude of the heart of submitting to a greater authority. It's the inward yielding of the heart to God, where bowing down is the action of our worship. So one is internal, one is outward. External is what is the evidence of the internal. Bow down in worship. They're similar and yet distinct. So what do we learn from this? Well, mark it down. Notice this in your notes here. God's people will be confronted with the idols of this world, just as these three young men were. While we may not be confronted in the precise way that these three Hebrew men were, you can be certain the idols of our day will present themselves to us again and again. Yeah, some may come quietly and without much attention, but others will be very public and put on display for all to witness. And when that happens, what will you do? Will you stand or will you bow? And remember, idols can be very seductive. The fact is, many things are good things when properly viewed, when properly used. But when a good thing becomes a, quote, God thing, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes, in other words, an idol so don't be deceived. As Christ followers here today, we will be confronted with the idols of this world. Second, God's people will be criticized by the people of this world. Living a life that honors God is not always popular. And so we better get ready to be criticized by the people of this world when we choose to live a life that honors the Lord. And this is exactly what happened to these two young men when they remained standing before the statue, when they refused to bow down and worship the golden image. Notice, though, it's interesting, they didn't protest, they didn't write in the streets about it. They quietly refused to obey the king's decree and instead chose to obey the one true living God. And that's when, at that moment, that's when their enemies quickly sprang into action and maliciously accused them. In fact, notice what it says in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. Now, this word accused, it's a, it's a great word. It's an interesting word, and, it, and it's full uh, of meaning here. And one meaning is this, is to eat their flesh. That's the literal meaning of the word accused here, to eat their flesh. In other words, these these Chaldeans, this group of them, they sunk their teeth into them. They chewed them up and they spit them out before King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, these Chaldeans accused these three Jews of three things specifically. They, one is that, hey, they're not paying any attention to you, king. They don't respect you, king. Number two, they, they accused them, they don't serve your God, king. They don't serve the king's gods, and, and that, on this one they are correct. And third, they don't worship the golden image the king set up, and they're right again. And it certainly appears that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now in a no-win situation. The critics have come out in the open, and they have called out the king, and now he's got to do something to kind of save face. The stage is set. And things do not look good for these three young men after standing tall before the statue. So now what will they do? And more importantly, what will God do on their behalf? Well, that brings us to number two. 
Faith stands tall before the king. These three young men would not bend to the king's pressure. Nebuchadnezzar set up his golden image to glorify himself and to unify his kingdom. And everything was going along rather nicely until these three young men refused to go along to get along. They had resisted the herd mentality and they bravely stood alone. When the matter was brought to the king's attention, he immediately flies into this furious rage at the challenge to his authority, at the challenge of his national unity, and he commanded that they be brought before him. And so Nebuchadnezzar questioned the three young men. He's asking them if the accusations are indeed true. In verse 14, look what, look what it says. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? And without giving them time to even answer, Nebuchadnezzar gave them a second chance in verse 15. Now if you are ready at the time to hear the sound of the music and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar asked the question that is the key to the entire story here at the end of verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Now there's a challenge in that question to these three young men. It's as if Nebuchadnezzar is asking them and challenging them Who's going to stop me? Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I'm the king. I'm all powerful. And you got to love their answer. Their answer is golden. We don't have to answer you, is the first thing they tell them, but we will. And then notice their answer in verse 17. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. What an answer! It's phenomenal! They will not trust in themselves. They will not trust in the powers of this world, even if it costs them everything. Instead, they will stand tall before the King, and they will trust in the Most High God who is able. Do you realize we worship the same God? We worship a God, the Most High God, a God who is able. Now this is good, but this is also rather easy. It's like saying, well, I'm a Patriots fan. I'm with the team that's going to win the Super Bowl. And that's easy to say when that team has Tom Brady, right? There's not a lot of leap of faith in that. And so these three men, what's interesting, they go a step further and this is what truly sets them apart when they tell the king in verse 17, but, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Understand something here. Their commitment to worship God is not conditional on if God saves them. They confidently rest knowing God is able to deliver them. And they rest in submission to God regardless if He saves them or not. 
Jesus says somewhat the same thing when He prays in the garden before His crucifixion. In Luke chapter 22, verse 4, He cries out, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. And so what does all this mean for us today? What do we take from this? What should we apply to our own lives here as Christ followers living in our Babylon today? We'll notice two points of application when it comes to the consequences of nonconformity. First of all, God's people will be challenged to worship the gods of this world. Today we are living in a world full of little King Nebuchadnezzars each demanding that we bow to the gods of this world and deny what is true or receive the furious wrath if we fail to comply. And you experience it at school, you experience it at your workplace, you experience it perhaps with neighbors, perhaps even with family. And because of this, because we, we deeply desire to be accepted by people, we're tempted then to comply rather than suffer being criticized or even demonized or ostracized. When pressured by our culture to worship the gods of this world, will we bow down or will we stand tall? Some may wonder. Well, since these, these three Hebrew boys or men since they knew the golden image was just a powerless idol, yeah, it was enormous, it was expensive, but it was empty, then why couldn't they just kind of bow with a wink and a nod to God, saying, Lord, you know in my heart I worship you? Because these three Hebrews understood precisely what the king wanted them to do. He wanted them to bow down and recognize him as the ultimate authority in their lives. And bowing down in worship would have been the reflection of that. As God's people, the only God they recognized was the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the false God of Nebuchadnezzar. And so for these three Hebrews to bow down and worship the golden image would proclaim something false to Nebuchadnezzar about their God and who their God is. This is why Nebuchadnezzar's question is the question not only of the day for these men, it is still the question of the ages, even today for us. Who is the God who will deliver you? That is a question we must settle in our hearts. Or else we will fold up under the pressure of our culture like a cheap tent in the wind. Listen, if challenged to worship the gods of this world and be praised or worship the one true living God and be burned to crisp, what will we choose? Oh my, let us choose like Joshua did in Joshua 24, 15. But as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. There's a second application here. God's people must be courageous in the face of pressure from this world. Why? Because we're going to be challenged in this world to worship the gods of this world. And so we need courage. We need to be courageous in the face of that pressure from our culture. These three Hebrews have embraced a counter-cultural lifestyle with complete confidence in God's power and in God's purposes. 
And because of this confidence in God, let me tell you, they were now courageous in the face of pressure. Again, they would not adopt some spineless compromise that says, oh, we will bow on the outside, but we are really standing in the inside. That's not courage, that's compromise. We see their confidence in God when they tell King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 17, our God is able. He's able to deliver us, but we see their courage when they tell the king in verse 18, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That is courage. That's faith standing tall. They were signing their own death warrant, and they knew it. But for these three young men, deliverance is not the issue. Obedience is, even if it costs them their lives. You see, the question in the minds of these three young men was not whether God had the ability to deliver them, but rather using that ability was part of God's plan. They didn't presume on God. They didn't presume to predict what the outcome would be in their case. They understood that since God is the most high God and since God is sovereign, it was his choice whether he opted to be glorified through their death or through their deliverance. Either way, it didn't make a difference in their decision. They would not compromise their commitment to the Lord. Live or die, they would be faithful to their God. And so what we see here is that faith stands tall before this statue, and then faith stands tall before this king, and now we see, number three, that faith stands tall in the furnace. These three young men would not burn in the fiery furnace. When we do stand tall for our faith in God, we had better be prepared to experience the wrath of our culture. That is more true today than ever before. Verse 19 says, Nebuchadnezzar was what? He was full of fury. We're living in an age where everybody seems to be full of fury. Why? Because you're not acquiescing to their thoughts, their worldview, what they think and what they want. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and then the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king was so furious that he's now the one burning. And to reflect his anger, he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And then the king commanded that some of his strongest men in his army to tie up the three Hebrews and to throw them into the blazing furnace. In fact, according to verses 22 and 23, look at it. It says, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. But then something unexpected happens. King Nebuchadnezzar is astonished by what he sees next. He watched Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall into the fire and not burn in the fiery furnace. Amazing. The king leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his counselors in verse 24, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And the king says in verse 25, Look, look, I see four men loose. 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. In the form of the fourth, it's like the Son of God. So who is this fourth man? Well, some think it was an angel of the Lord, and that is certainly a possibility. I tend to believe that it was a rare appearance of Jesus Christ himself before his incarnation. Regardless, what is clear is that the Lord was in the fire with them. That's what we know. And while God could have done any number of things to save them from the furnace, he chooses to save them by dwelling with them in the fire. I like how one pastor and author put it, the God who did not deliver them from the fire was the God who met them in the fire and delivered them out of the fire. And as a result of God's presence with them in the fire, these three young men emerged from the furnace unharmed, unscathed. Nebuchadnezzar sees the work of the Most High God here, and he is completely overwhelmed by what he is seeing. And so he calls them out of the fire. And verse 27 tells us what everyone sees. I find this amazing for the simple fact that Nebuchadnezzar, in the beginning of the chapter, he calls everyone together to see what? The false God that he set up. Now, everyone is witnessing the power of the one true living God. And notice what they see. It tells us here in verse 27. They saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Now earlier, Nebuchadnezzar asked the question of the ages. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And now he has seen the answer to his question. It is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is not the God of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar now is forced to confess the greatness of their God. He even gave praise to God and then threatened any who spoke against their God with death, which is somewhat ironic here. Isn't that just like King Nebuchadnezzar? Since death was the punishment Nebuchadnezzar tried to enforce on these three Hebrews, and it didn't work. Now, understand something here about Nebuchadnezzar and what's going on with him when he praises the Most High God, when he acknowledges that God. Nebuchadnezzar, in other words, he has changed his position about God, but he has not changed his allegiance to God. Which goes to show you that even great miracles don't have the power in and of themselves to change people's hearts. So too, Nebuchadnezzar's heart was not changed at a deep level by this experience, by what he saw. The Most High God was still the God of who? It was the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was not his God. Nebuchadnezzar still would not bow down. He would not fall down prostrate in the face of this revelation of God's power and confess for himself my Lord and my God. And sadly, there are many who respond in the same way to the message of the cross of Jesus Christ and to the res power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But for those who do confess Jesus Christ is their Lord, He is their Savior, here is God's promise for you. Look at this in your notes. Faith in the fire. 
we can be confident that the Lord is with us no matter what happens. Listen, in this world, our God doesn't always promise to keep us from the fire. But He does promise to meet us there. What these three Hebrews experienced in the fire was a fulfillment of what God told His people way back in Isaiah 43, verse 2. Where Isaiah the prophet writes, When you pass through the waters, I will be there with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Notice that God didn't promise, though, to take His people around the waters or to keep the fire from them. On the contrary, trials and tribulation was the anticipated path for God's people then and it still is now, today. Yet, in the midst of those trials and tribulations, the Lord has promised that His people could count on His presence with them, ensuring that their trials would not overly overwhelm them. Listen, the Lord, He does not stand afar off from us as His people. He is not somewhere way over there, and we are here in the midst of it. He has promised to be Emmanuel for us, God with us. We have God's promise in Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as a result, according to Romans 8.38 and 39, nothing in all of creation can do what? Can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what an amazing story. An amazing story of three young men who were willing to stand tall for their faith in God, even if it might cost them their lives. But what an, an even more amazing demonstration of God's power to deliver them. And while this story, oh, it provides us with so many lessons to apply to our own lives, several lessons we can draw out of here while living in our own Babylons today, let me leave you with two life lessons for thriving in Babylon. The first life lesson is this. You must have an absolute conviction that God is able. We need an absolute conviction that God is able. Do you think these three young men thought the king was just kidding when he said whoever didn't bow to the golden image would be burned in the furnace? No way. Listen, they... They didn't doubt the king's intention to throw them into the furnace. They didn't doubt the king's willingness to act if they refused to bow. So what then? What was it? What gave them the confidence to stand tall before the statue and the most powerful man in all the earth? Listen, they had an absolute conviction that their God is able. Able to deliver them, and that made all the difference in the world. And because they knew their God, they knew what their God could do. And because they knew what God had done in the past, they knew what God could do in the present. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you struggle a little bit to stand tall in your faith. You struggle to stand tall Stand tall at school with your friends. You struggle to stand tall at work with neighbors and coworkers or whatever the case may be. And if that's you, and believe me, it's all of us at one time or 
another, and we all struggle with this, if you struggle to speak boldly about Jesus, if you struggle to live confidently as a Christ follower, perhaps this is the reason why. You lack a conviction that God is able. And the reason that we lack conviction that God is able is because if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't know about the Most High God. How well do you know your God? How well do you know the God, the Most High God, that is revealed in the Word of God? Listen, this is the great value that comes from reading God's Word and being taught God's Word. And when you read God's Word, especially in the Old Testament, and then as you move into the New Testament, you begin to discover who God is. You begin to understand what God has done in the past and what He can do in the present and the future. Knowing God gives you the strength to stand tall no matter who is standing against you. And if we're going to thrive in Babylon, we must have an absolute conviction that God is able. And that conviction comes from knowing our God. You say, how do I know our God? He has revealed Himself in His Word. That's why we renew our minds, as Paul says in Romans 12, with the Word of God, so we will not be squeezed by the pressure of the world. The reason why so many Christ followers get squeezed by the world is because we lack courage and we lack conviction. We don't know our God. Number two, you must have an unwavering commitment then to worship God. Listen, the central issue, the central issue in this story, I hope you caught it, it is all about worship. Worship is at the heart of this story. And so the question becomes, who are you going to bow down to and recognize as the supreme authority in your life? Who are you going to give your allegiance to? I challenge that to all of us. That is a great question for all of us to ask, no matter how old we are. But listen, to you young people, I especially challenge you to think about that. To consider who is the supreme authority in your life. Who are you going to give your allegiance to? And the fact of the matter is, as Tim Keller writes, you don't get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what or who to worship because we were all created for worship. And so we will all worship something or someone. So let us have an unwavering commitment to worship God and God alone. Let us not give in to the pressure of culture to put our God in second place or to keep our God in private and therefore secondary. Let us stand tall in our commitment to worship the Most High God who is able. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You this morning and we thank You for the opportunity to worship You. 
we thank you that we can bow down to you in faith because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, Lord, we, we recognize and we acknowledge you are the only one worthy of worship of our lives. But, Lord, even as Christ followers, we struggle. We struggle against the pressures of our culture. And so help us to take this story, help us to see ourselves in this story and to apply the principles and truths so that we may thrive in Babylon. But we do so in your grace. So extend it to us, Lord. Forgive us where we have failed you. And Lord, we claim that forgiveness based on the work of Jesus on the cross and his shed blood. Thank you so much, Lord for your salvation. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Praise team's going to sing a chorus of invitation, of response time. Listen, do business with God. Go to him in prayer. Whatever is needed in your life at this time.